It means I have some ugly, disgusting man who's like really thirsty to kill inside of me. I'm always joking, you know, because I'm like 100 kilometers away. Mark size. I feel like we'll have to give them a ride. But it's not them. It's her. She's walking around the park. And it was strange because it's very close to the border and you hear explosions first and air raid alarm right after. Because, you know, there's no time. There are some hilarious things, like this guy who lives on As the if it's obvious. I say hello to the stranger through clenched teeth and get in. She's twice my height. Talk to Stop. each other. Fiction, it's called fiction, but it brings you the truth. Even though the story is actually made up, it needs to bring some truth, some relief to people's lives. <laughs> Welcome to the Fictionable Podcast, powered this week by Karpa and their latest track, Couch. Last week we heard from M. John Harrison, who shared a little of how he blurs the line between fiction and reality. In a ghost story, how do you know who's alive and who's the ghost? What if it was a struggle? Over the next few weeks, we'll be hearing from Sean Patrick Burney, Shauna McKay and Catriona Bolt. But this week, we welcome Irena Carper, her rockin' band Carper, and her creepy short story, Fellow Traveller, translated by Kate Serkin. When she spoke down the line from Paris, she started by reading from Serkin's svelte translation. We are the last ones down the mountain. The sun is setting and there are only three cars left in parking lot. A white van, a red car and ours. The van is turning around to leave and the red car's alarm is blaring non-stop. The restaurant is closed and the nearest village is about 15 kilometers away. Mark sighs. I feel like we'll have to give them a ride. But it's not them, it's her. She's walking around the car alone in short decathlon shorts, a bulky jacket, and an acid pink beanie. Right by the lot, I got caught on a blackberry bush, but Mark's already marching up to her car. He tries to open the hood. For some reason, the alarm's still blaring. They tug on all the doors, and then he makes a sweeping gesture towards our car. I don't like it at all. For starters, the car is actually mine. Shouldn't he ask me if I'm okay with it, even as a matter of form? Secondly, it's tiny, only big enough for two people with barely room on the back for a dog. And here's Mark, playing the gallant hero, sighing and declaring, So we should help this person, right? He folds down the passenger seat and gestures for me to go in the back as if it's obvious. I say hello to the stranger through clenched teeth and get in. She's twice my height. Stocky, robust, she struggles to fold herself into the car. I shrug off my rucksack and start untying my boots. But Mark gives me such a glare, he must be worried my feet will stink. I keep them on even though I've been dreaming of getting rid of them for the last half hour of the descent. 
My blistered feet throb quietly in my thick socks. I stare out of the window, trying not to cry in frustration. I can't really catch what they're talking about. I learned German in school and have picked up a bit of French since then, but here they are, carrying on in Spanish. Meanwhile, Mark's sharing all his profound knowledge of the world of Ricky Martin and reggaeton, as if trying to pass off a modified Tabria as a vintage Mercedes. The sky in the west turns blood red. I get out my phone, but... All the pictures are full of pillars and headdress, our traveling companion's pink hat. Mark's chattering away like the parrot that's living in the tree opposite our kitchen window in sieges. The stranger is mostly quiet, keeping her replies brief in a low, quiet voice. She's probably thinking about her keys and how the spares are thousands of kilometers from here, and she doesn't know. Carpe is a writer, TV personality, blogger, punk and straight-up revolutionary. But we began with literature and how she started on the journey with her fellow traveller. We actually were coming down from the mountain with one of my friends, believe it or not. I have a friend, she lives in Barcelona. She's an ex-model who went into uh, art managing, someone like very tough from Ukraine. Only one thing, she hates mountains. And she really hated me for that matter because because <laughs> I took her up. For me, it was just something so sweet and simple, like one hour and a half, two hours. I love mountains. I did Nepal seven times, you know, like every summer I'm in Pyrenees. And that was just like a nice walk for me. And she was about to die calling me names. <laughs> and then she said, just imagine we go down now and you find out that you lost your key from the car. <laughs> so like, And I said, like, yeah, actually, that could be another story. There's something in that. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. Are you still on speaking terms? She's still a dear friend, but like she's still remembering that. But she said, next time we go into the seashore. I call her my muse, so I think she's satisfied with that, yeah. What about the twist? Without giving too much away, was the twist there all along or did that come to you as you were writing? I think it came to me. Sometimes I'm just surprised about characters' actions, what they turn to be, what they say. They start living their lives. It's like controlled madness. You see the character and like, what's going on? Are you crazy? Like, am I crazy? <laughs> and you don't know. But actually, I made a series of pretty dark short stories when I was on confinement, when it was like COVID, nobody could move. I wrote so many stories with like ugly people killing ugly people or like killing nice people and some jealousy stories. I don't know where it came from. And usually, like, the main character was man. And in my novels, it's usually a woman. So it means I have some ugly, disgusting man who's, like, really thirsty to kill inside of me. <laughs> I'm always joking, you know, because I'm, like, 160 centimeters high and I'm really small. I don't know what is it uh, in inches, but believe me, it's very small. So I say, like, every time, oh, God, thanks, God, I'm not a man, you know. It would be pretty ugly man, like, you know, <laughs> if I would be a man. So I think that poor man still lives somewhere and he's, like, raising his head and he lives in some ugly sub near Kiev usually, you know, like some of the Soviet post-war constructions or from 70s or 80s, people are gloomy and, you know, like 
Okay, you know them, because like my grandma lived in something like that in Cherkasy. So I grew up with junkies next door. So I know those people. I don't know why it came back to me when I was like almost 40, you know, like why all these experiences came. But those characters, they got to live in the very, very strange ways. And I can say they are totally fiction. Usually I use prototypes from real life, like either my life or my friend's lives or some stories. And those guys were just out of nowhere. And thanks God they're gone. (laughs) But they've left you now. You're free of them. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, they never came back so far. (laughs) Fingers crossed. (laughs) (laughs) One of the pleasures in the story is the way you paint the relationship between your narrator and Mark. Mark ignoring her, belittling her, giving her the wrong bottle of water. He's awful. I was going to ask there, are you drawing from life? Yes. Actually, this is true. And I was pre-feeling this question. And I was thinking like, actually, no, it was when I read the English versions, Kate's translation of this short story. I was like, hmm... It tells me something, you know, and then I actually realized because I had a relationship with the guy like this who was like, how to say it, not to spoil the story, or like, we are so similar, like, look, our fathers have their birthdays the same day, our first kids are born the same day, and turned to be a psycho, it turned to be a psychopath, and like, really, like, it was gaslighting it was like some passive aggressive treatments Mm. and I was pretty pretty grown up I was 35 years old and I never seen it before so like for me it was all new like little things like you know for sure that this person hates water with gas and you do it on purpose you just hear it is for you very very minor things but you can see bigger from yeah as it builds up for sure yes 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 i know uh, this kind of relationship of like devalorizing each other i can see it around unfortunately you know some woman opens her mouth and her man like oh what do you know about it It gives me physical pain when I see one person humiliating another, like I cannot stand it. It happens, unfortunately. Yeah, it's so horribly plausible because it happens every day. Yeah, sometimes in very subtle way. This is the worst because when this aggression is passive, no, no, I never meant it. No, it's okay. It's okay. No, just maybe you should uh, wear like uh, one size or two sizes bigger. Oh, no, 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 it's it's very good on you. It's perfect, you know. Just this uh, stupid examples that come to my mind, but like, psychologists they advise to tell like are you going to tell me I'm fat you know (laughs) so like something directly just take this hidden aggression and do it open and this is what helps Mm. which was not possible in the case of uh, our characters in this short story because you will read why (laughs) 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 what about provocation about shock does that play an important part in your work I like doing twists, that's for sure. For me, it's the biggest compliment when they say, after having read the novel, like, wow, I thought I guessed everything, but, like, I didn't expect this. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is good. Because we were joking right before our recording, like, about us being technical geniuses, you know. (laughs) I was very bad in math. I was, like, incapable, you know, like, I'm still incapable to do, like, these schemas or, like, tables or whatever. And making thrillers, making like unexpected things, it actually evokes some mathematics. And this is why I think I'm so happy because like, yes, it's like check and mate, my math teacher. Like (laughs) I can use as much math as I need. I think it's more intuitively, you know, it's more like out of blue, the apple hits your head and you have this idea. Quite often when I plan something ahead, I just throw it away because it doesn't work, because it looks artificial. French say, like, you know, taken by hair, or like uh, Ukrainians say, taken by balls, (laughs) even worse. (laughs) 
<laughs> and life gives so many more unexpected things that any author can think of. Sometimes I don't even use the real stories because they look too impossible. Mm. Mm. What about strong language? What about difficult subjects? What about challenging things? I mean, your Wikipedia page says you use some strong words in your books. Yes, I think it's very normal for English-speaking readers, you know, because you were way ahead with using strong words. And in Ukraine, literature was still like, uh, you know, very, oh my God, we are so nice. Literature is such a spiritual thing. <laughs> no, literature is life and life is not always spiritual. Just imagine even you being a professor of philology and you have a hammer hitting your little finger. Like, what are you going to say? Oh, mighty God. No, you're going you're gonna to swear, of course. You know, like you're not going to use anything poetic. So I'm always about truth, you know, and language should be truthful and language should actually transmit real people's feeling and social backgrounds, of course, you know, like when uh, there are two gangsters from those suburbs of Cherkasy, which I mentioned, nobody knows where is it, but believe me, suburbs don't go there. So <laughs> they cannot use the language of Baudelaire or Shakespeare or Taras Shevchenko, you know, like they can maybe use it to have fun, but they will use like the, the mixture, the local variant of that language. They will use lots of swearings, lots of rude words and not even that. Like, so all of my friends, they are swearing. And I often even advise to my students, you know, like when you feel down, you can just swear when no one hears you or you can write swearings towards the person who hurts you, you know, like you can even kill this person when it's on a paper, you know, so like this, you will go out there calm and very relaxed. I'm really for strong language because we all use it, you know, maybe there are some church people, but they do worse things. <laughs> Better use strong language than, than try to be nice on the surface and then do bad things in the real life. Yeah. Do you think that we all need a bit of shaking up? Yes, I think so, but I'm not doing it on purpose. When I was young, I really liked to provoke. I really liked being Marilyn Manson in the literature and like, haha, really lying about my sex drugs life, being much more cool and badass than I was in real life, you know? I'm a musician, we're doing like some punk rock stuff, so of course it's not like we were going to the mass and like read some poetry to each other wearing beautiful white dresses, no, but like... You're proper punk, right? Yeah, 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 but it was electropunk, so it was like indie music, our influences, Nine Inch Nails, Sonic Youth, Tom Waits, for example, Radiohead, of course, Muse. So the life was like this, and I tried to describe like this phenomena of this like young Ukrainian street culture that was born because it was not so long ago after the USSR collapse. People tried to get finally freely these Western influences and like find something new, you know, like it was lots of experiments with form, with sense, with street language. So this is why my early books shocked because they were written in Ukrainian, in contemporary Ukrainian used in streets. Not very high-end and not a village one. Normal urban language. Like people would speak in cities in Ukrainian. And like many people actually switched into Ukrainian because they saw that it's normal language like anything else. So I think this probably is my like biggest patriotical achievement. That people just saw how normal it is, you know, like there's nothing extraordinary with speaking your own language. It's like being proud of being Ukrainian. It's like being proud that you have kidneys or heart or lungs. It's you're just born like this, you know, like this is your language. It's normal to create with it. And 
it's normal to picture people uh, the way they were without embellishing them, without making them smarter. Yeah, of course, I made my characters look cooler than they were. Because in my real life, I probably wouldn't always dare to stand up and say something. But my protagonist, of course, she was like, ha, fuck you all, you know, like really. She did stuff that I couldn't do, but I was not like a shy librarian kind of like bookish worm either, you know, so I was... I was out there and I was taking lots of materials to collect witnesses about that era. You really were out there as well. I mean, during the Maidan revolution in 2014, you were playing to thousands of people protesting in Kiev. Yeah, yeah, it was amazing, yes. And I was turning 33 and we have our local version of Happy Birthday to You. And it's like, it's like long life, you know. And can you imagine, that's like one of the strongest souvenirs I have all these thousands of people at midnight in Maidan singing me this song and I'm on a stage and they all send this to me it's like on my 33rd birthday <gasps> that was real amazing thing like really absolutely that was very important to be there and to see very different people you know you can see some grandpa who's like spending his pension to be there and you can see some very wealthy women who are like taking their fur coats and giving them to like some girls who are freezing you know and like oh, come on I'm gonna buy another one I'm very grateful to God that I lived in this era because you could literally see the transformation of people you know who are there who are like very polite to each other and like wow you're a bona fide revolutionary yeah it's very easy to do revolution it's very boring to maintain results later it's also like that's like a joke about Ukrainian society we are like very Che Guevara style you know like After that, when it's like, okay, so it's not fun, there's no much drive, no groove, you know, like, okay, so like... And then, of course, like, some assholes will come and use this in their advantage, so we need to grow up. Unfortunately, now with this war, everybody's growing up. I hope we will not take it for granted. We can't. Every family has someone who's in war or lost someone already. I don't know anyone who's not connected, and I really hope, like, this time the lesson will be learned. I want to ask about the war. I mean, it must be impossible to ignore even though you're living in Paris at the moment. What's it like trying to work while missiles are falling on your hometown? I went nine times to Ukraine during the war and it's absolutely necessary for me because mm. otherwise I was eaten by guilt, by guilt of not being there, of not sharing this, especially for someone like me who was always in the heart of everything. So I, I'm going there quite often. I was in Donbass, I was in Kharkiv and I heard, yes, I heard the explosions and it was... Just a strange fatalist feeling. It's funny because being Ukrainian, you're connected. Everyone is so used now to the missile strikes and so on. So if it's not your house that's like hit directly, the maximum negative impact you have, you're just tired because you didn't sleep enough because you slept two hours. And this exhaustion is always one of Putin's uh, aims because people are exhausted and they hope the people will grow tired and tell like, okay, let's forget that part of Ukraine. Let's give them. We want to sleep. But no, people are actually getting more and more angry and they say no, not a centimeter. And I was in Kharkiv and it was strange because it's very close to the border and you hear explosions first and air raid alarm right after. Because, you know, there is no time. There are some hilarious things like this guy who lives on a very high floor of his building and he's literally watching Belgorod. He sees Russian territory from his window and he has this telegram channel and he says, okay, there are two missiles. So like go down <laughs> to, to your basement. So like he was basically commenting every time. I don't know, like when he slept, when he ate because mm. he was always there. 
Then we went to Kramatorsk, like real close to the border. And you kind of adopt the attitude people have in place. Because we were visiting our friend who's paramedic. She was wounded. She was in a hospital. And she just lost her boyfriend. We were talking. She was smoking. And I was bringing some books together with my fellow writer, Serhii Jadan. And we heard explosions. And they're like, ah, those are ours. The feeling is strange, and what I really remember from Kramatorsk is how many stars I could see, because the city is blacked out, there is no electricity, and you can see huge mountain stars, like as if you were in mountains somewhere. Yeah, I'll be back again to Kharkiv. I have some artistic projects like musical literature and so on, and it's absolutely necessary. Do you find that you can work more in writing or more in music? Is there any difference between the two at the moment? My group is in Ukraine, so it's more complicated. But still, we managed to do something. We just recorded a new song that's called Kerch. It's about this famous bridge that's supposed to be blown up. And I even learned to grow in that one. <laughs> so that was not a very good try. But with the microphone, it's just hilarious. And I'm so happy, you know, like, because usually people do it when you're a teenager. You start and like, I'm, it's just such a good feeling, you like, when you do this dark voice. I think the good thing is also to go visit soldiers, you know, and like this is what I did also, but I was more as a stand-up just to talking to them and shocking them, like because there are only boys and there were two girls. And I come up on the stage, improvised stage, and I say, hi, girls. <laughs> like, and you boys, hello as well. So that, <laughs> that was all like, and the girls like, oh my God, somebody noticed us. I really like doing that. Well, there are 60,000 women serving in Ukrainian army right now. So they actually, they deserve a tribute. We're saying hello to. They're amazing. Yes. And so many stories actually to take from that. And like so many people, one of my best friends, she was an illustrator. She was doing the covers of my books and albums for Carpa Group. And she turned to be a paramedic in the war. And then she had such a beautiful love story with some young surgeon and I was writing about it and we were joking about it like black humor total. And then I found out that he he died, that he was killed. Oh, I'm sorry. It's just so painful. You're a writer, but you don't find words sometimes. That's also like a big conflict as a writer. Do I have a right to write about war or don't I? Or what should I do? I'm here in Paris. People are there. But I think we can all talk to each other. Fiction, it's called fiction, but it brings you the truth. Even though the story is actually made up, it needs to bring some truth, some relief to people's lives. And this is what I do. I really try to make it easy reading. I think it's easier to make it like using lots of complicated words, like look how educated I am. I don't really try to humiliate my reader by, you know, like using uh, some words in Latin in whole sentences and like you go and Google it. No, I'm not doing that. So I'm trying to be very reader friendly because literature must entertain, you know, even like especially in dark times. And when people say I'm taking your book into bomb shelter or I'm taking it to evacuation, for me, as for the author, it's like, wow, like Nobel Prize, you know, because like it actually eased, it soothed somebody's life in a very dark moment. So I think this is why I create for people to be able to relax wherever they are, on the beach or in the basement or in the transport or like in bed. I'm just so happy to get these returns that it's used for something. And is this the same with your music? I mean, is it part of the same artistic project or are they kind of you rest from one with the other? 
The music, yes, uh, I really like perform on a stage and I really like provoking. Like one of the latest titles, it was like Chicks are Cool Guys, something like that. Babi Kruti Čuvak. Babi Kruti Čuvak, yes, yes, yes. And I actually, I got hated from some of Ukrainian feminists because they were offended that I compared men to women and that I called them chicks <laughs> instead of women. And I'm, oh my God, really? Are you serious? You don't, you don't like irony, sarcasm, actually, you know, like artistic work. Do your audiences cross over? Do you find people who read your books also turn up to your gigs? Yes, sometimes they don't even know that I do both. Sometimes they mix me with another Karpa. There is Natalka Karpa and who's doing like marriage in the village music. Music stuff, you know, and I once saw like people aged of my mom, and they looked like bookkeepers, cleanly dressed, not like audience who went to rock concert. You know, you just see people in work trip, and they're listening, and they're drinking more and more, and then they start slamming like crazy, you know. And I'm like, oh my god, such a conversion! And then they come to me, and they say like very good music you make. We had no idea. We only heard your song about some flower. And then I realized that they meant another carpet. <laughs> they actually went to the concert of this girl they listened on the radio. Most people, I think, they know me as a writer. And sometimes I have people who never read me, who never heard the music. The worst kind of fame I ever got, I wrote a book, How to Get Married as Many Times as You Want. Of course, it's very funny, ironic fiction, you know, but in Ukraine, it's still a big deal. So for a moment, in the eyes of babushkas in shops and in the streets, they looked at me, oh, you are that girl who got married. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, such a big achievement. <laughs> like, what? No matter how many books you write, how like many speeches, you are that girl who got married because they saw some people's reportages and like all this yellow press and so on. So. Because you do it all. You do journalism, blogging, cartoons, TV, yeah. modelling, activism, everything. And is it all part of the same project? Yeah, not in the same time, luckily for me, because that wouldn't be possible. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think books are number one. And then I have music and then I have all these activities uh, that actually helps to be alive. I mean, earn some money. So I do literature courses or like therapeutic writing. That was something that worked out very well for all these people who were perplexed and they couldn't find themselves you know when the war started they couldn't cope with their emotions can you look forward to a time when the war is over yes of course i'll get so drunk <laughs> you can't imagine <laughs> like <laughs> like i think we all have uh, in our wardrobes already like a big part of dresses destined to celebrate the victory and i'm like oh my god i save a bottle of champagne in my key flat for that matter you know i, I keep it there i have it there but then the realist comes out of me and I say it's not going to be just like Doom! one moment, big celebrations like we see in some happy ending films about World War Two, for example. That will be very slowly, that will be like people will be released slowly from the army. We will have so many injured people living in cities right now. All these boys, girls, men, women. It will be very challenging. It is already challenging. It's like challenging corruption matters, like all these officials. They are much hated by society. That must be changed. For someone who has any ethical standards, you cannot believe that people can steal in time of war. We should really just face it, to be adult, you know, because it's a very teenage thing to do revolution with some cool music and it's fun and so on. Then you see people dying, like in this Maidan revolution, the second one, we had 100 people who died for that and the price was high and then the Crimea started and then the Donbass started. Our main goal is to turn into a real change. 
What does real change look like? What's the destination? Destination is already partially achieved. People who stopped looking into Russia's mouth and saying like, oh, this is real music. This is real culture. It's like, you know, it was so funny. One woman, she went was like a book market and she said, do you have a new book by Stephen King? And she said like, yeah, I have a, like Ukrainian a translation and a Russian one. And she said like, give me Russian. I prefer read in originals. <laughs> so, like, so I really hope it's not going to happen again, you know, because like people started discovering Ukrainian heritage, like everything that was done to uh, Ukrainian uh, peasants during this like artificial famine or to uh, Ukrainian intelligentsia, like uh, writers and painters and movie directors, like all those people who were just killed in Siberia, who were just like, today you're creating, tomorrow you're deported into Siberia and no one ever sees you again. Most of all, I really hope like we don't go into this gloomy side, but we realize it, we don't get into amnesia and we create new society. People who speak Ukrainian normally without like saying, look, I'm Ukrainian. Yeah, by the way, this is like what I'm wearing. It's... With the Ukrainian flag on. Yeah, yeah, it's Ukrainian flag on, but it's, it's a very, I think it will be a collection item one day. So, and I really hope this ugly suburban things will be rebuilt into something more anthropocentrical, something more, you know, destinated to humans and people will be more careful with natural resources and everything that you start to lose drastically, you understand its value. I just want for Ukrainians to be normal Ukrainians, you know, so just, I don't know, nothing extraordinary must happen. So many people woke up, you know, and lots of them woke up and they feel love towards the land, towards like the animals or like the, the nature or architecture and so on and so on. So I really hope it will just refresh its face and its heart. Refreshed and revitalized for sure. Here's hoping she'll be cracking open that bottle of champagne someday very soon. That was Irena Karpa. You can catch more tracks from Karpa, that's Karpa starting with a Q, on Spotify, Apple Music, Last.fm and Instagram. And you can read Kate Serkin's report on how Ukrainian writers have responded to Russian aggression since 2014 on the fictional blog, alongside fellow traveller and brand new stories from M. John Harrison, Sean Patrick Burney, Shauna McKay and Catriona Bolt. Search for Fictionable on your mobile, tablet, laptop or internet-enabled bass guitar. Hit subscribe in the handy drop-down menu on the right-hand side and you'll get a year's worth of exclusive new short stories and comics for £20. You'll also get access to our entire archive of short fiction with stories from writers including Sarah Hall, Edgar Kerrett, Diana Evans, Serena Cat, and Lizzie Stewart. We love hearing what you make of our podcast, our blogs, and, of course, our stories. So at us on Mastodon, Instagram, or Twitter, or get out the fountain pen and blotter and email us on info at fictionable.world. If you have a smartphone handy, record yourself, send us the audio, and you might just end up on the next edition of the Fictionable Podcast. That means you'd be appearing with Sean Patrick Burney, who's angling for a promotion. I was quite depressed and pissed off with work. <laughs> <laughs> as simple as that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's often a good way to start, start with something that pisses you off. It and reading from his story, thing. The Medical Room. With thanks to Irena Karpa and, of course, Karpa, that's all for this time. So from me, Richard Lee, and everybody here at Fictional Towers, thanks for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.